guys, wow. Great job. Y'all make me want to sing. <laughs> I'll just sing for the next fifth. No. Um, uh, will you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious and loving God, we come today seeking to be more the people that you have created us to be, seeking to be more like your son, Jesus. May we do just that today. May these old words become fresh. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable in your sight. Amen. Well, it certainly would be easy if we could have just a little talk with Jesus that would clear a lot of things up, I suspect. Over the last six weeks, we have been in a sermon series called, Who is This Man? Looking at the life of Jesus as told through the Gospel of Luke. And today we, sort of, we come to the conclusion of it, and this is a little bit of where the rubber meets the road in terms of just, just who is Jesus. Now it's a tough, tough question to consider, tougher than it may seem, because if you think about it, there are, there are four Gospels in the New Testament, four distinct Gospels with four distinct views of who Jesus is. Church councils and groups have met for years upon years to write creeds and determine who Jesus is and, and to write confessions that the church still uses today. Artists have depicted Jesus in many different ways depending upon time and upon place and all of these are an attempt to figure out what a Middle Eastern Jewish man who lived 2,000 years ago might actually look like. There are over 1,800, 1,800 new books published every year about Jesus. It's a lot of books. Scholars have debated and, and, and argued about understandings of who Jesus is for years upon years upon years. You can find pretty much anyone who thinks about Jesus exactly like you think about Jesus, all the way from sort of a rational enlightenment teacher to an eschatological prophet who came proclaiming the end of the world. Some of us are sitting here today with the fondness and the wonderful memories of the stories we heard in Sunday school growing up about how, how our teachers nurtured us with the love of God. And others of us are sitting here because our church experience, perhaps early on in life or recently, did not match up to who we thought Jesus and God might be. It was a painful experience, and so we became spiritual refugees of sorts for a while. Who is this man? In many ways, it depends on who you ask or what stage of life that you might find yourself in. To quote John Ortberg, he says this, he says, It's in Jesus' name that desperate people pray, grateful people worship, and angry people swear. From christenings to weddings to sick rooms to funerals, it is in Jesus' name that people are hatched, matched, patched, and dispatched. Well, if you're wondering that question today, you are in good company. Jesus' earliest followers were wondering who 
was this man. Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who Jesus followed, has been imprisoned. And many of those people that were following John the Baptist are now following Jesus, and they're growing a little bit uncomfortable with who Jesus is. And so they come to John the Baptist in prison. Now you remember, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. In many ways, he is his mentor. He is his close friend. And they're asking that question to John the Baptist, who is this man? Who is this Jesus that we are giving up everything to follow? And so John the Baptist sends them with a question. He sends them to ask, are you the one? Are you the Messiah we have been waiting on? Or should we wait for someone else? Are you the one we've been waiting on? Or should we look for someone else? In many ways, in today's world, it can be very tough to carry the label of Christian. That label means many different things to many different people. We've probably all at some point in our life when we identified ourselves as a Christian had to say, but I'm not that type of Christian. There are issues we face in the world today, issues such as inequality, such as racism, such as injustices of all sorts. There is personal pain. There is communal pain. We know that things are not the way that God desires them to be. And so it can be hard when, when we say that we follow a God of love, a God of grace, a God of peace, a God of justice. We may not see the evidence for that. I got a text Wednesday night from my friend Corey. He's a, a disciples pastor in Tennessee, and he was driving home from a church meeting this week and experienced a talk radio program. He had been flipping through the channels. That's always a mistake to flip through the radio channels in the middle of the night or late at night. And there was a, a Christian talk show on. And the Christian talk show host was talking about how the liberals and the LGBT community had ruined America and had caused all our problems. And so he was texting us to, to vent his frustration about having to carry the same label that this person does. We know that those things are not true. And he said the most ironic thing was when they played the bumper music on the way out, it was U2's Where the Streets Have No Name, which is a protest song about equality. So you can see the problem with carrying the label Christian. Now if you remember back to the beginning of the synagogue, Luke 4, when Jesus shows up to preach his, his first sermon in front of his home church, in front of his home crowd, he told them things that might have made them uncomfortable. He of course said, I'm here to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives. I'm here to bring sight to the blind. I'm here to bring liberation. And ever since then, Jesus had been doing exactly what he said he was going to do. He had been healing the sick. He had been eating and drinking with the poor. He had been proclaiming release to the captives. He had been hanging out with the people that no one else wanted to hang out with. He welcomed those people to follow him whom no one else would welcome. He had done exactly what he was going 
to do according to him. But you see, the people are restless because he's not meeting their expectations. Things are not changing as fast as they would like them to. It's not just us that's an instant society. Even back in Jesus' day, people wanted things right now. And so the people are growing restless, much like we do today. And they decide it's time to ask him, are you the one? Are you the Messiah, or should we look for another? Do we need to waste our time with you anymore, or do we need to stick this out? Now, we do feel different about Jesus and about God depending on the day of the week. Some days we might wake up and we say, I'm fully on board. This is great. And other days, we may wake up and get out of bed and go to work and go about our day and say, ah, you know what, I think I'm going to look for another. This following Jesus thing, it's complicated. It's hard. Don't want to do it today. The good news is, in all of this, Jesus takes no offense. Jesus takes no offense when we have those thoughts When those people come to ask him, he just keeps reminding people that God and God's love are on their side. He reminds us that that no matter how we might feel about God on any given day, that does not change the way that God feels about us. That God still loves each and every one of us, all of humanity, all of creation, no matter what. And to be fair, we have expectations of God, don't we? Think about it. Sometimes when we pray, in some ways those are spoken expectations of God. You have to be careful about how you pray. Because sometimes those expectations may be met. Other times those expectations may not be met. And so sometimes when we expect a lot from God, that's a good thing. In other times, when our expectations are not met, we can easily become disappointed. And when we become disappointed, we miss miss the miracles that are right in front of us. We don't see what God has placed before us. Now, last week, my family and I went to Walt Disney World. We did four parks in four days. We walked 27 miles in four days which was great because we ate enough where we needed to walk 27 miles in four days. And one of the uh, attractions we did was a frozen sing-along. And so they sort of did a play and a performance and, um, and sang the, the hit songs from the movie Frozen. It was really wonderful. And we were sitting in the second row. And, and this was into our second day. And I think all of us were already a little bit tired. And I have to admit, I was going in thinking, golly, do I have to hear the songs from Frozen again? Enough with the Frozen already. And sitting in front of us was a, a mom and a developmentally disabled adult in a wheelchair. And watching him, watching him during that performance when Anna and Elsa came out and watching him wave and when the characters would stop so that he could take a flash photography picture of them even though he wasn't supposed to. 
watching his thrill with literally being transported to that place. And of course, the, the mom is, is worried that other people can't see him. And, and Mary Michael leaned forward and said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. His joy is contagious. And I thought, that's the miracle I needed at Disney that day. To see his joy, to see his excitement at seeing these characters come alive. To see someone who obviously had had a difficult life, had had a difficult journey, to have those moments of expectation, those moments of grace, those moments of joy. It was such, such a powerful moment. And I must confess, after a while, I quit watching the performance and just started watching him. It was a reminder of the goodness of God. You know, at some point, we have to give our life to something. We always are giving our life to something. Even if we don't believe anything, we believe something. We believe that we don't believe anything. But sometimes, we can't let the expectations of God affect the call of God on our lives. We can't let the expectations of God affect the call of God on our lives. You see, we often reduce God to being made in our image rather than us being made in God's image. When we cannot comprehend, when we cannot see how God is at work, we reduce God to being made in our image. We can't do that. And so sometimes the Messiah, the Messiah we want, is not the Messiah that we so desperately need. Sometimes the Messiah we want is not the Messiah that we so desperately need. You see, that kingdom announcement is still here today. When Jesus comes and says, I bring good news. That good news is still present here today. We just have to learn to be able to see it and to see how we can be agents of that good news. We're in good company because our spiritual ancestors, especially those of Jesus' generation, had the same issue that we do today. They have the same issue. They couldn't see the good news at work, but it was there. It was working if they only thought enough to look. If only they opened their imaginations and they opened their hearts to how God might work. I mean, think about the ways that we restrict what God does today. I mean, even in some ways, proper church life. We feel like proper church life can contain the work of God when actually proper church life works against the love of God sometimes. We create our churches around what we think and expect God to fit into that rather than letting God create who we are and what we do and, and what is proper and what is not. I still have people every time I talk with them that say, I can't believe, I can't believe that you welcome all people to your communion table. There's got to be a limit, doesn't there? Who says? Who says? It's certainly not what God would say. 
And so sometimes, even when it appears that the status quo is not changing, when the status quo is not changing, when the privileged and the powerful still seem to get their way, that's not always the case. When it seems like the powerful and the, the privileged are continuing to serve themselves and, and, and have God made in their image, that's not always the case. When it seems like God is sitting something out, God is indeed at work. God is indeed at work. We just have to open our imaginations to be able to see it. There's a story of two tombstones. The first one, the first one is the tombstone of Mel Blanc. And Mel Blanc, of course, was the creator, the voice of many of the Looney Tunes characters. And when he died, what he told his family that he wanted inscribed on his tombstone was his famous Looney Tunes saying, that's all, folks. And so on his tombstone, it says, that's all, folks. There's another tombstone that Philip Yancey talks about, tells a story about, and it's a tombstone of a, a, a woman who lived a long life, is buried under an old willow tree in rural Louisiana. And on her tombstone, what she instructed her family to put on the tombstone was this, waiting, waiting. In many ways, we approach a life of faith with those two, those two ideas sort of butting up against one another. The idea of, that's all, folks. What you see is what you get. That's it. There's nothing more to come. And the idea of waiting. Waiting, which tells us that as we view the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there's always more. There's always more that even death doesn't have the final word that in God, life always triumphs over death. That even in death, we are waiting for more to come. That when we leave the house each morning, what we see is not the only thing we see. There's always more. There's always more to come. And when it seems like things will never be as God desires them to be, there is more to come. That's not the final story. So who is this man? May we consider that he was a child. A child that was born in Bethlehem that very early in his life had to flee to Egypt as a refugee to avoid violence. And he grows up to be a friend to the powerless, not a friend of the Roman Empire. He was a friend of those who were going against the empire. He pronounced a new way. He ate with those that no one else would eat with. He welcomed those that no one else would welcome. He hangs out with people that most people would describe as ordinary and unimpressive. Think about if someone said that to you. You know, the people you hang out with are pretty ordinary and unimpressive. 
But that's what people thought of Jesus. He welcomed and he would pay deep attention to those who no one else would pay attention to. Those folks on the margins that people did not see, Jesus saw. And he announced the availability of a new way of life, a kingdom, not like any other kingdom the world had seen, but a kingdom rooted in love and in justice and in grace and in peace. And not only to say, he didn't say this would come, but you can be a part of this. This is available to you. If only your imagination is big enough to see it. And then he was executed by the Roman Empire because he dared to challenge them. He dared to challenge the powerful on behalf of the powerless. And because he did this, he was put to death. And that's not where the story ended. That wasn't the end. It was merely a beginning as his resurrection proclaimed that God's love cannot be stopped. That death does not have the final word when it comes to God and when it comes to God's kingdom. His resurrection was merely a beginning of the mission and the ministry and the movement that we are still part of today. So here's what I've come to believe about Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection is it's not something that was meant to be debated by historians and scholars and, and all sorts of things. His life, death, and resurrection is an invitation. It's not a subject, but it's an invitation. It's an invitation to us all to follow, to learn, to live in the same manner. Who is this man? He's the son of the living God. It's in him where heaven and earth meet. And the fullness of life is known for all. Amen.